as we continue our journey through John, John's gospel. Um, by the way, most people, or most scholars at least, break John's gospel into two halves. Uh, the first half, or first book, is called the book of signs or signposts. Because these signposts are carefully selected by John, events in Jesus' life that point to who Jesus is. And that's John chapter 1 through 12. And then starting in chapter 13 to the end is the second book, which is often called the book of glory, which focuses on Jesus' hour, what Jesus calls his hour of glory. And this is about what Jesus came to do. So we are stepping into that book today, the second book, John chapter 13. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. It was just before the Passover feast or holiday, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. (laughs) He knew that. He knew who he was. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. That, by the way, is the uniform of a slave. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is the act of a slave. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, Peter, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter responded, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You are clean, Peter, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When Jesus finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me rabbi and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and rabbi, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word for today. You can be seated. So Passover is going to be like the backdrop to the book of glory or the second half of John's gospel. Again, it's this time that just uh, focuses on Jesus' hour. 
And it's no coincidence that this is happening during Passover because Passover is the granddaddy of all the Jewish holidays. Because what Passover celebrates is that climactic event in their story when God liberates them from slavery to an oppressive Pharaoh. And the way that God did this is he brought a judgment day on the whole land of Egypt. Even the Hebrews were not spared of this judgment, but they were protected and they walked out that day of that judgment day as free people, free from slavery, because of the blood of a lamb that covered them, protected them. So this holiday is all about a lamb. God instructs every family to get a lamb and to bring that lamb into their, for, into their family four days before the event. Kind of like as a family pet. Each family member is to identify with that lamb, spend time with that lamb, get to know that lamb because that lamb is their lamb. Then on the fifth day, the lamb is brought to the temple to be sacrificed. A lot of times this would be a family affair. Uh, they would come as families. They would see that lamb being, being uh, sacrificed and then prepared. And then they would bring it back. And then on the sixth day, which is Passover, the family would eat the meal, which was centered on the eating of the lamb. So verse 1 says just before Passover. So we're, we're, they're probably just hours away because Passover begins when the sun sets because Jewish days are sunset to sunset. And I know that's so strange for us that, that Monday is going to begin in, in, in a few hours when the sun sets from now, but that's how they do it. So they're just hours away from the sun setting from Passover, but also from Friday. It's Thursday and it's going to be Friday, what we call Good Friday. In other words, the next morning, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. So this is Jesus' last night with his disciples. For the next four chapters, John is going to tell us about this night from the seat that he sits. The first event that John wants us to know. First, not because it's probably the first thing to happen, but for John, it's first in importance. Because this event becomes the interpretive key by which all the other events that are going to unfold in this hour make sense. And this first event is Jesus getting up from the table during the meal and washing their feet. Look how John puts this in verses four to five. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus taking on a slave uniform and doing what slaves do. I don't know what you picture when you picture this, what we call the Last Supper. A lot of us picture something like this. It's a phenomenal piece of art. Beautiful. Historically, not very accurate, though. 
Um, and, and Da Vinci did a wonderful job, okay? So I'm not knocking the artwork. Uh, he probably just didn't know some things that you are now going to know if you didn't know them. Because Passover by Jesus' day evolved with all these traditions, just like Christmas in our day has evolved with all of these traditions. Like giving of gifts, is that anywhere in the Bible? Christmas, the holiday itself, isn't even in the Bible. Or at least the instruction to celebrate it. Same way with Passover. All these traditions evolved. And, and, and one of them is that during the Passover meal, no one sits. Everyone was to recline. Laying down. As they ate the meal. At what was called in that day a triclinium. A triclinium is a U-shaped table. Like this. That's how the Romans, the Greeks, the nobility, the kings, uh, that's how they dined. Uh, they didn't sit. They, they reclined around a U-shaped table. Now, here's the question. Why on Passovers do Jews recline and not sit? Well, I think the great Rabbi Mimidides, uh answers this question. He says, one is required to see himself as if he had now left Egyptian slave, slavery on Passover. Hence, when a person eats on this night, he is required to eat and drink while reclining as a sign of freedom in the manner that kings and important people eat. So they recline. They eat the way kings eat, the way royalty eats. Also, they sat according to their importance or their rank. So there was a place for the most important guest. There was a place for the least important guest. Why? Because this is how nobility, royalty, dine. Now this is foreign to most Jewish homes, but not on Passover. They followed these traditions. Because on Passover, they were no longer slaves. They became royalty, God's royalty, so they dined like it. And their ranking was usually done oldest to the youngest. Now, we do this on occasion ourselves, uh, wedding receptions, charitable dinners. We oftentimes seat people according to rank, according to importance. Now, the way that this worked around a triclinium, the ranking went left to right. So the host, the father, the patriarch, who in that world was the most important, did not sit on the end, but second to the end, because both to his right and to his left where were the two most important seats of honor. So here's a picture that's a little more historically accurate, not so much in the reclining aspect, but in how they sat around the table because you can see Jesus in this sitting just second uh, from the left end um, because to his right is the most important guest of honor. That is the most important seat. Just like it often says in the Bible about Jesus, he sits at God's right hand. That is the place of supreme importance. Uh, then the place uh, to the left of Jesus was, would be the place of the next importance, working clockwise all the way around the table to the place of least importance all the way to the right. Now Luke's gospel gives us a little detail that I find fascinating. Luke tells us an argument arose amongst the disciples. 
they get in the room and they start talking about who's the greatest. And I think what they're arguing about is who sits where. Who's going to sit at Jesus' right? Who gets to sit at Jesus' left? Who's going to sit way at the end of the table? And the reason I think this is because Jesus has to get into this argument and he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have power, uh, who are called benefactors, this is how they do it, but not you, not us. He said, let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader among you as the slave for who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines but not among us. I among you am the one who serves. And I think this is a foreshadowing to our text today. I want you like to know who sat at Jesus' right, who sat at his left, who sat across the table in that least important position. Well, the gospels give us enough detail where we can know the answer to those questions. The one who sits at Jesus' right hand in that place of honor is John. Now, church tradition tells us that John was the youngest disciples, and he outlived all the other disciples by a long shot. We also know from the Gospels, and I don't have time to show you all this, but, G, that, but Peter is the only one of the 12 disciples who is over the age of 20, so he is the oldest I mean, in verse 33, Jesus addresses them as little children. And and that word there literally means teenagers. These disciples are teenagers. I would put John, the youngest, at probably 13 or 14 years of age. And then when you keep reading the rest of this chapter, like in verse 23, it talks about how he is reclining next to Jesus And then in verse 25, he puts his head back on Jesus' chest. Now, the only person that John in that place could see would be the person directly across the table on the other end. And that's Peter. Because what's going on, uh, as you read all this, Jesus just drops the news to all of them that one of them is going to betray them. Peter gets stunned by this and has to know the answer to that. So he motions across the room to where John is resting back against Jesus' chest and said, find out who it is. And then he puts his head even further against Jesus' chest and asks Jesus, who is it? And then Jesus answers John and says, the one to whom I dip. And I love this. They get in that room. Okay, Peter, you're the oldest. Go take the seat of least honor. John, you're the youngest. You take the place right next to me, the seat of greatest honor. And this is a world where everyone knew their rank. I mean, there was a pecking order for everything. It was determined by age, gender, social status, net worth. Price tags were put on everyone, even in the Jewish world. So let's talk about the foot washing.
This is not something that we do in our world. This isn't something that anyone woke up today and thought, all right, uh, when am I going to wash my feet? At least I don't think you did. Um, but to the ancient, uh, washing your feet was as common as washing your hands or taking a shower. Um, it's for the simple reason that that climate um, is, is hot, it's humid, uh, it's, it's a very dusty climate. Uh, th- also add to this, there's no air condition. And, and the way that people traveled, the way they got around is they walked. The average person walked 10 to 30 miles a day. And they're on their feet all day, every single day. They don't have the benefit of Nikes either. Um, I mean, they're just walking in their sandals, bare feet. So you can imagine as their feet are constantly exposed to dirt, dust, sweat, animal poop, all of this stuff, how nasty their feet became. So washing is something that needed to be done uh, several times a day, especially when you were entering someone's house. And this is why if you neglected to wash your feet, you were shamed in this culture. It'd be much like today if you, if you refused to shower or, or wear deodorant. Um, we we kind of do the same thing today. And then when you think about how social this world is and how social happened, it happened through parties, banquets, dinner parties, minus restaurants. They didn't have any restaurants. Kind of like us today right now, no restaurants, okay? And we're, we're trying to figure this out, like how do we do our social life? Well, in the ancient world, all this stuff happened in someone's home. So that's what we probably need to start doing. Um, also supporting our, our, our local restaurants as well, Amen. right? I mean that. So in, in, in this kind of setting, Hospitality 101 included that the host had to make sure that all their guests had their feet washed. It was the way that you welcomed people, that you showed respect and honor to them. By the way, one time Jesus invited into the Pharisee's house for such a banquet. Do you remember what he says to that Pharisee? After a prostitute came And they were reclining like this, and she started washing his feet with her hair. And that host looked at this and said, does he know who's doing that? And Jesus stepped into that and said, sir, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't even give me a welcome. But this woman has. So who did the washing, typically? at these parties, these banquets, these socials. It was always done by the person of lowest rank. Everybody had their price tag. And usually it was a slave, the the lowest slave, because this was considered the lowest of all work. And this didn't only hold true in the Greco-Roman world, but the Jewish world as well, because if a Jew also had servants, and elite Jews had servants in this day, it was a servant's job to wash feet. It would be the lowest-ranking servant, usually a girl, because that's how it was in this culture. If you didn't have servants, children, especially daughters, would be the ones responsible to wash feet. They had the lowest rank in this ancient world. If if you were part of a havarim, 
a disciple with a rabbi. A disciple would wash the rabbi's feet. A rabbi would never wash a disciple's feet. It was unheard of. Jesus gets up and washes their feet. He subjugated himself like a slave. He does what no host, no noble, rabbi, king, benefactor, boss, husband, parent would ever do in that world. He stoops. He stoops low. And he subjugates himself like a slave. And the way John introduces this act is with verse 3. And Jesus, knowing that all power was given to him by his Father. Here is the one who holds all the power, the absolute greatest becoming the absolute lowest. And I want you to see what Jesus just did. He just turned the whole social order upside down. Because with this host, this rabbi, this king, and his family, and his kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The humble will be exalted, and the exalted will be humbled. But Peter isn't there yet. Even though Peter's probably had the best small group experience anyone could have. He's had the best small group leader anyone could have for three and a half years. He's had the best teacher of the Bible anyone could have. But he's still not there yet. He's horrified that Jesus would degrade himself in this way and wash his feet. You can't do that, Jesus. Now, what I find interesting is that it was Peter's job, sitting at the end of the table in the least important place, to wash the disciples' feet. But like I said, he's not there yet. Just like we can go to church, just like we can hear sermon after sermon, we can have Bible study after Bible study, but not be there yet. I love this. Jesus responds to Peter, Peter, listen, if I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part of me. <laughs> At that, Peter, he's like, all right, Jesus, not, not just my feet, but wash every part of me. I mean, it's Peter's way of just saying, look, Jesus, I am all in. Yeah, he's all in, but he's still not there. And then John tells us in verses 12 to 13, he says, when Jesus had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, Jesus said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Do you understand it? He says, because you call me rabbi and Lord, and you are right when you say that, because I am so. In other words, 
Yes, Peter, I am over you. I am your rabbi. I am your Lord. But this is how power is done in my kingdom. Power is done in my kingdom by giving up power. By becoming a slave and serving. And then Jesus says this, now that I have washed your feet, go and do likewise. Be like me. Become like me. Live like me. Walk like me. Now, washing feet is not just how power is done in Christ's kingdom, and that is a lot for us to think about, especially in this time that we live right now. But washing feet is also how we love. This, this is an expression of love. In fact, this whole section begins in verse 1 when it says, having loved them to the end. And end here is the Greek word telos, which means utmost. He loved them. To the utmost. In fact, the old NIV, I I love how it read. It said, showing them the full extent of his love. Therefore, Jesus got up, took a basin and a towel and washed their feet. What causes Jesus to stoop? Love. What causes Jesus to make himself nothing? Love. What causes Jesus to take on the very nature of a slave? Love. What causes Jesus to humble himself like this? Love. Love isn't a feeling. Love isn't being nice. This is love. And the one we're talking about here, because John doesn't want us to forget this, is the one who once said, let there be light. He once said, you know, I want a planet to be over here. I'd like a star over here. How about if we put a whole galaxy over here? And here he is. Washing 12 sets of smelly, stinking, disgusting feet. And that's just what feet are. I mean, I, feet might be the most unattractive part of our body. They're ugly, they're dirty, they smell. Oftentimes, they can be disgusting. And think about it, in a world where we love what is beautiful and what is attractive, we, we love what's going to serve us and make our lives better, and we do that in the name of love, here stands the person of Jesus. I mean, just look at what he's doing. He loves the unlovely, the unattractive, the dirty, the unclean. He washes feet, and this is a metaphor really for his whole life. And that's why in a few verses after this, in John 13, verse 34, Jesus is going to look at him again. He's going to say, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And you're like, whoa, you can't do that. You can't give a new commandment, Jesus. But he's building on the old commandment, Shema. And he says, here's my version of that. Don't just love your neighbor as yourself. I want you now to fulfill that by loving as I have loved you. 
So it's not a new commandment. It's, it's, it's loving in this way, this kind of love. It's stooping low and washing feet. Think about who's around that table. In just a few hours, every one of those guys is going to desert him. You go all the way to the end of the table, Peter trying to get John's attention. He's going to betray him publicly. I never knew that man. We never did talk about who was sitting to Jesus' left, did we? Look at him already disassociating himself. Hey, Judas, tonight I want you to sit in this place of honor to my life, to my, to my left, right next to me. Judas was probably stunned. Like, what? And then think about how stunned Judas would have been when Jesus then got up and he's the second set of feet he washes. And Jesus knows what Judas knows and Judas knows that Jesus knows that Judas is the one who's about to arrange his torment and all the suffering and that cruel death. That's why this is in the text. Side by side, Judas with Jesus washing Judas' feet. Stoops like a slave and subjugates himself in that way for Judas. Do we love like Jesus? I think it starts with who's around our table. You know, the Bible never says love humanity. That's what a liberal will tell you. Sorry. That's what our world will tell you. Love humanity. What does that mean? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says love your neighbor. Love the person in front of you. Love the person next to you. Love the people you work with, the people you go to school with. Love the people that you rub shoulders with. As Edith Stein so well said, she said, for the Christian, there is no such thing as a stranger. There is only the neighbor, the person near us, needing us. Husbands, are you loving your wife? Are you washing her feet? Are you stooping low? Are you subjugating yourself as a slave? Wives, are you washing the feet of your husband? Parents, are you washing the feet of your children? What about our neighbors? What about those who have deserted us, slandered us? What about those who have mistreated us? How about those who have backstabbed us? How about those who have been unfaithful to us? Are we stooping low? Are we washing their feet? If we don't love this way, it's for one simple reason, pride. We're too proud. 
And do you know that to God, the ugliest, most detestable, most repulsive thing is pride? God hates pride. And if we belong to this God, if, if, if we follow this Christ, again, I ask, on what basis can we ever think that we're better than any other human being ever? On what basis can we judge someone? Do you ask how much pride and, and, and feeling better than it takes to actually judge someone? On what basis, if we are followers of Christ, can we not stoop low all the time and wash feet? From our friends, to our families, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to even our worst enemies. I don't know if we know what a big deal humility is to God. There's another time in Matthew chapter 18 where the disciples again are arguing. They're just like us. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's going to sit at Jesus' right? Who's going to sit at Jesus' left? And Jesus just like grabs a child, the youngest, the smallest child, puts him right in the middle of them and says, unless you guys humble yourself like this little child, you will have no part of me. And see, without genuine humility, we are incapable of loving others, period. We cannot live out Jesus' new command if we're not humble to the core. So maybe you're asking, well, what is humility? Well, let me start with what humility is not. Humility is not just saying, poor me, I'm such a loser. That's what we think humility is. Uh, but look at Jesus. That's not what Jesus is. Jesus isn't doing this. Jesus isn't just walking around saying, I'm such a loser. Humility begins when we have a proper understanding of ourselves. And once we understand ourselves in light of God, we are free then from thinking that we're better than anybody. We are free even from this need to be better. We're freed from seeing people through rank and title and this pecking order because in our minds now there isn't even a pecking order. Mother Teresa said it so well. She said, if you're humble, nothing will touch you. Neither the praise nor disgrace. Why? Because you know who you are. So how do we possess this? God needs to break us. And this goes back to the last couple of weeks, that grain of wheat. We heard it this morning in David's testimony. <laughs> the seed must die. We must go into the ground. We must die because... Egos, egos have these insatiable appetites. The ego must die. We must be broken. And this is why seasons of brokenness and suffering and when we go through trials, that's why 2020, I know it's been a hard year and even harder for, for some than others, but in all of that, we need to see uh, all that God can do in us and through us through the pain, the difficulty, and the trials because without brokenness, we will never have humility. And without humility, we will never love the way Jesus loves. 
Because this whole act, it just points us to the cross. That's why Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you don't fully understand right now, but you know what? 24 hours from now, as you reflect back on this, after you see me hanging on the cross, you're going to understand it. It's going to make sense. And see, this is why a new commandment because what Jesus just did is he just raised the ante on the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Not only now do we, are we called to love people as we love ourselves, we're to love them more than ourselves. Where we sacrifice ourselves and give up ourselves. And this is the kind of love that Jesus is, is prescribing to his followers. And it is a love that is so inconvenient, so costly, demands so much from us. But this is the way that Jesus will still say still later, this is the way the world will know that you're a follower of me. Are you living out this command? Are we as a church living it out? How do we do this? Well, first, to love like Jesus, we have to be washed by Jesus. That's why verses six to eight, and Peter says, you can't wash me, Jesus. Jesus says, I have to wash you. And, and it, we have to be like Peter then. I love this, this guy. He's real. He's willing to say, Jesus, wash me. Wash me. When's the last time you've come to Jesus with those words? Jesus, wash me. I need you to wash me. I'm dirty. I'm defiled. Jesus came to the world to wash us. He died to take his filth upon him so he could cleanse us. And this is why Jesus says, the one who's been forgiven much <laughs> is the one who loves much. Have you been forgiven? Let me ask you, do, do, do you live your life like a creditor or a debtor? We need to stop resisting this idea that as Christians, we are nothing but debtors. Debtors who, who say, I deserve nothing. And I owe God and I owe others everything. That's a debtor. That's someone who's been washed. Second, to love like Jesus, we must know the full extent of his love. And if some of us are honest right now, one of the reasons we don't love others is because we have no love to give. And the reason for this is we don't feel loved. And you can't pour out something that hasn't been already poured in. And some of us right now are, are, are paralyzed in our inability to love and, and, and say things like, oh, I, I don't feel loved. Nobody loves me. And some of you are, are, are feeding those thoughts. You're, you're nursing those thoughts. And too many of us spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time speaking to ourselves. 
Because those thoughts need to be rebuked. Because those thoughts are from the pit of hell. Because what does God's word say? In 1 John, John writes, how great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us. That we should be called his children. And that is what we are. And that's the same John who's sitting in that place with his head resting on Jesus' chest, feeling Jesus' heartbeat. And the reason John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved is not, that's not an arrogant statement. This is someone who knows the love of Christ. He's experienced it. And like John, we've been invited to rest upon Jesus' heart. And we love for the simple reason that he first loved us. Start believing that. Start acting on that. Irrespective of your feelings, God loves you. Live your life loved. As Psalm 90 verse 14 says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days.